February of 2014. I'd like to talk to you about what hope is, how it's a problem, and then the Christian way of dealing with it. So let's take a look at it like this. Firstly, what is hope? Hope consists of two things, desire and expectation. Everybody has desires, things you want and long for. How will those desires be fulfilled? Well, you look to something to fulfill those desires and set your expectations on those things. And whatever those things are that you set your expectations on, as you think being able to fulfill those desires, those are your hopes. That is what hope is. So you have to have desire and expectation for what you will fulfill. Let me show you how important it is in which uh, way you live your life. Imagine two women who are both hired by a company to do a certain task nine hours a day. They are put in two different rooms, but they're identical. Same climate, same lighting, same humidity, and they're given exactly the same thing to do. It's not particularly interesting. It's assembling something and then moving on and assembling something else. So they have the same job and the same situation and the same circumstances in every way. You tell one woman at the end of 12 months of work, you'll be paid $15,000. But you tell the other, at the end of 12 months of work, you'll be paid $15 million. At lunch breaks, they eat together, and the first woman says, Boy, this is tedious. Don't you think this is boring? The other woman says, Not really. Yeah, but it's okay. It's alright. Why? You know the answer why. The these two women are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways because of their expectations. In other words, their future expectations, their future hopes, what they believe about the future, is completely shaping how they're interpreting and experiencing the present moment. One of the things philosophers and sociologists and a lot of other people are trying to work on is that we are the very first culture that promises nothing after death at all, essentially no future beyond death. There has always been reincarnation. There has always been karma. In other words, every counselor has always, to some degree, said that there's a possibility of bliss. There's a possibility of eternity. We're the very first culture that has ever said, no matter what you do here, it doesn't matter after death. No matter what you do here, it doesn't pay to pay off or be punished. There's no ultimate fulfillment of death, of so many new desires, even though every individual is different, and there's no doubt about it. People are all over the map. A lot of people are saying, that has to have an impact on people, on how they live their lives, across the whole swath of culture. It has to have an impact on joy. It has to have an impact, frankly, on things like integrity. Why should you behave with integrity? What are the consequences? What are, they, what are we after? We are hopelessly hope-shaped creatures. We are absolutely hope-shaped creatures. We are irreducibly hope-shaped creatures. We need it desperately. It has every impact on how we live now. So that's the nature of hope. It's very important. Secondly, the problem. What do I mean by the problem? Well, the problem is that our hopes are always being disappointed. They're inevitably disappointed. Horace, the Roman poet, says, no one lives contented. That's a pretty categorical statement. They think they're content. They're not. No one lives contented. Wallace Stevens, a modern writer, says, in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. In other words, he's saying, even when I'm content, I realize I'm not really content, because I realize that what I'm experiencing that makes me content is temporary. 
And because it's temporary, it makes it hard for me to enjoy it. Even in contentment, I still feel the need for some imperishable bliss. Henry Gibson, the Norwegian playwright, says, when you take away the life lie of anyone, they lose all their happiness. By the way, in the context, the life lie is that there's anything out there that will actually make you happy. Anything about which you think, this is going to make me happy. When you actually lose the life lie, you lose all the happiness. The most eloquent person talking about this was C.S. Lewis, who gave a radio talk over the BBC in the middle of World War II. In it, he makes this statement. He says something like, most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no country, and no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of ordinarily what would be called an unsuccessful marriage or trip and so on. I'm speaking of even the best possible ones. There's always something we grasp at in that moment of longing that just fades away from the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. You have never had it. All of the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul but hints at it. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled. Echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away but swelled into the sound itself, you would say, this at last is what I was made for. Do you understand what it is? We can't define it. It is the thing that will satisfy us, that we think the things have until we get to them, and then we want to kill ourselves when they're not there. That's what Cynthia Heimel says. Lewis ends like this. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. We long to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. That is our inconsolable secret. What is that? I think he's right. I think you know he's right. The real problem, of course, is that we have these desires and we have expectations for those desires. That's what hope is. The things we expect to fulfill them just don't do it. One other person who ends up being a friend of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, read an essay that's just a classic called On Fairy Stories. Don't forget, even though many of you may know J.R.R. Tolkien just as a fantasy writer, he was also a world-renowned Oxford professor of ancient Northern European languages and culture and literature. He was one of the world's experts on things like Old English, Old Norse, Old Gothic, Old Icelandic, and all of this stuff. He says on, in On Fairy Stories that we have desires that realistic fiction can't touch. We have an itch that only this kind of fiction can scratch. Realistic fiction can't scratch it. Even though we know it's not true, even though we think it's impossible, when we have, when we have these stories that show escape from death and love without parting and stepping outside of time and communicating with non-human beings and triumph over evil, we can't get enough of them. There's an incredibly deep longing for these things, and yet there's nothing we know of in this life that can possibly satisfy those longings. There's one place in the essay where Tolkien says, 
If fairy stories awaken desire, studying it or satisfying it while also wetting it unbearably, they succeed. He says these kinds of stories succeed because, on one hand, they're satisfying. Otherwise, we wouldn't pay to see them or buy the books and read them all the time and love them so much, even when everybody else is saying, sorry, that's not how life is. Modern realistic fiction, no happy endings, no happily ever after, that's realism. That stuff doesn't sell. You know what? It certainly doesn't move you in the same way. Some people who have done everything they possibly can to change their aesthetic taste so that they hate fairy stories, and there are a fair number of people like that, have really cut themselves off from most of humanity. The question is, why do we want these things? These are our longings. This is what we long for. Realistic fiction can't scratch that itch. Even fairy stories wet the desire unbearably. They're satisfying, yet at the same time they create more longing, just because it's not true. So now what are you going to do? This is the reality. We have desires that nothing know, that nothing we know of, that we set our expectations on, that we hope in can fulfill. What are we going to do about that? What are you going to do about the fact that all of your deepest hopes are always going to be disappointed by the things in this world that you put your hopes on? So let us talk about Christian hope. First of all, what is the Christian hope? Christian hope is not just when you die, because what if Jesus Christ has done, you live with God. This is a very different kind of prospect than either Hinduism or Buddhism provides. Christianity comes and says, the thing you're really longing for, escape from death, love without parting, communion with non-human beings, stepping outside of time, will literally happen. All of the things the stories promise will literally happen. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is and was raised from the dead, all of that stuff will come true, and the Christians who experience assurance that Jesus is the Son of God have that hope, and it's astounding. Keep one other thing in mind. The hope is resurrection. What is resurrection? Resurrection is the belief that not only, not only that God saves our souls and our souls go off and live in a disembodied thing forever, but that we get new bodies, and this world is healed from suffering and evil and poverty, and we get a new material universe. There's no other religion that promises this. The reason it's so important is if you only hope for eternal life with God forever, that could make you not concerned at all about what's happening right here, right now. But if you know it's God's will to end poverty, to end sickness and disease, to heal this material creation, a Christian who has this incredible hope that no matter what happens, I'm going to know escape and death, escape from death and love without parting and all of these things. It also creates an ability to be extraordinarily concerned about what's happening here and When you die, you know, so it neither gives you, you might say, the hopelessness of saying, when you die, then you rot. There's nothing more after that. It doesn't really matter how you live, because that's what's going to happen. And nothing you do now counts forever. On the other hand, you don't get a hope that makes this world unimportant. That's the Christian hope. Secondly, I would like you to consider whether or not I've just given you an argument for the existence of God. Not a demonstrable one, but at least a clue. Here's how it works. C.S. Lewis concludes his reasoning. He's talking about the fact that nothing in this world satisfies us, and here's essentially what he says. A duckling wants to swim. There's such thing as water. A baby wants to suck. There's such thing as milk. If I find myself a longing which this world cannot meet, then that probably means I was made for another world as well. 
How could it, an idiotic universe have produced creatures whose mere dreams are so much stronger and subtler than itself? Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been fish or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? If you were really a product of the materialistic universe, how is it that you don't feel at home here? What you can easily say is, hey, just because I want something doesn't mean it exists. Well, Lewis is trying to say this. Just because you want Coke doesn't mean there is a Coke at hand or even anywhere in the world. On the other hand, if you're thirsty, it does mean there's liquid. Innate desires don't exist unless fulfillment for those desires is there. Is that demonstrable? No, but it's an argument. It's a proof. J.R.R. Tolkien converted the atheist C.S. Lewis talking about this. Tolkien wrote a poem, not a particularly good poem, but it's lovely, called Mythiopeia. It's basically the story of how he shared the gospel with C.S. Lewis in a unique way. Now, I wouldn't suggest any of you try it with anybody, but here's basically what was going on. We have to piece this together from the poem, which is a little bit hard, but Humphrey Carpenter's great biography on J.R.R. Tolkien is also extremely helpful here. They were walking along at Oxford, and they were talking about myths and fairy stories. Lewis agreed that there was this deep itchiness, this deep desire that only fairy stories could scratch, the desire to escape from death and to believe in a supernatural and have a world beyond this world and all of those things. He understood that. He said, there's something about fairy stories and myths and sagas that really hits us like that. But then he said, but myths are lies, though breathed through silver. Tolkien says, no, they're not. Tolkien said this about fairy stories. This is all from on fairy stories, a lot of which he tried to convey to Lewis. I'll show you how this works. He basically said, fairy stories give you a consolation. It's the joy of happy ending, the sudden joyous turn, this joy which fairy stories can produce supremely well. It's not essentially escapist or fugitive, it's a sudden and miraculous grace. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. Indeed, it, the possibility of these is necessary for the joy of deliverance. Rather, it denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal and final defeat. Therefore, fairy stories are evangelum, the gospel, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It's the mark of a good fairy story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible its adventures, it can give, when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat, and a lifting of the heart, near to, or indeed accompanied by, tears, as keen as those given by any form of literary art, and having a peculiar quality. For in the turn we get a piercing glimpse of joy, and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside of the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story, and lets a gleam come through. He says, that's what fairy stories do. Everything looks dark. Everything looks like a disaster. And suddenly, out of norm nowhere, hope and grace and triumph escape. Lewis said, they're beautiful. They move me and I love them. But myths are lies, though breathed through silver. Tolkien says, no. When you come to Jesus Christ, the incredible story of the Son of God looking down from heaven, seeing the mess we're in and writing himself into the story, coming into it, as it were, emptying himself for us, and at the end, after his death, resurrection and the end of sin and the end of punishment and new life. He says the story of Jesus is like all of the other old myths. 
it gives you that turn. It's astounding. But here's the difference. The story of Jesus is not one more myth pointing to this underlying reality we all feel we want. No, this is the underlying reality to which all the myths point. The story of Jesus is the one we f it's the one fairy story that scratches that itch, that wets that need, but it's historically true. And that's the reason C.S. Lewis wrote an article called Myth Became Fact. Jesus is the myth that became fact. In Jesus Christ, it's all going to happen. That hope transforms. It gives you a hope, plants your feet right now in the material world, it gives you the very thing that nothing else can give you. That's the Christian view. That's Christian hope we have because of the advent of Jesus. Thank you.